Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Julie Moronuki. Based in Montana, Julie is an author, speaker, trainer, and consultant who creates books and courses and other teaching and training materials with a particular focus on the Haskell programming language. Along with her colleague, Chris Martin, she runs the consultancy Type Class Consulting. You can sign up for their courses and materials at typeclasses.com, and you can find out more about Julie on her website, argumatronic.com, and follow her on Twitter at argumatronic. Julie is a co-author of a LeanPub book, uh, Finding Success and Failure in Haskell, Fall in Love with Applicative Functors. In the book, yes. Julie and Chris yeah. talk you, walk you through the creation of a program in, in Haskell step-by-step. The book is meant for readers who are getting started writing in Haskell and want to speed up their understanding through quick and clear examples and exercises and actually doing it. In this interview, we're going to talk about Julie's background and career, professional interests, her books, and at the end, we'll talk about her experience self-publishing now. So thank you, Julie, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I always like to ask, start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. You have a particularly interesting one with respect to you know how you came into uh, teaching Haskell. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and you know your your first experience, how you came to uh, have an interest in in Haskell? Um, well, <laughs> where I grew up is a that's a really difficult question. Um, we moved. I've moved a lot, both in my childhood and as an adult, so I've lived in, um, I mean, the number of states I've lived in, I think, is in the double digits, <laughs> and uh, I lived in Japan for a while as well, so, um, yeah, I was, uh, <clears throat> so, I I have my master's degree in linguistics, um, and I had taken some time off. Well, I mean, I, I had been a librarian and I was doing some teaching online, but uh, I was taking some time off from full-time work, at least, um, when I had my kids. My kids my kids were younger. And um, I met a person on Twitter, who um, Chris Allen, who was the co-author with me in my first book. And um, he, at the time, wanted to... He thought it was really interesting to meet somebody who um, was not a programmer, but uh, had some interest in logic and, and some sort of related things. And um, he sort of convinced me that he would he would really like to try teaching Haskell to somebody who had never programmed before. Um, Haskell has does sort of have a reputation for being difficult to learn. Um, and most people who learn Haskell, it's not their first programming language, and they've learned um, one or more, you know, imperative or object-oriented languages before they come to Haskell. So he had this some idea that um, teaching it to at least one person who'd never who never knew programming before would uh, give some indication of whether the difficulty with teaching Haskell was because people were coming to it from a totally different paradigm background and the paradigm shift required to learn Haskell was what was making it hard or, you know, whether it was something else. So we started, we started that. I sort of agreed. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I, I never thought I would like programming and so I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really think I would stick with it. Um, but I was. I heard this talk. There's a saying, and I don't know who originally said it, but um, there's a sort of saying uh, about a good type system should make any legal program um, should make it. On, should, sorry, I'm going to mess it up. Uh, that a good type system should make you know any legal program. Um, writable and not make it not not and make you unable to write any illegal program, right? And so that interested me because um, 
and I'm sorry that I botched it so badly, but, um, huh? I said, oh no, that's okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so that interested me because in, when I was a linguist, um, and I was sort of working in a, in a generative syntax framework, the idea of generative syntax is to come up with a set of rules, syntax rules that could generate any legal sentence in a language and not be able to generate any illegal sentence in a language. And it's very, very difficult to, to do that. (laughs) And so, um, even for really well studied languages like English, it's very, very difficult to, to do that. And so it kind of interested me that connection between the, this idea of type systems and the and this idea of generative syntax and how they might be connected. So I sort of started um, getting more serious about learning Haskell after that, and I was contributing more to the book so that then I became a co-author of the book. And um, and that's how I got started, I guess. I've I've still um, I've still never really held like a Haskell job, and so in some sense, I don't really feel like a Haskell programmer. Um, but I've I've chosen instead to focus on, you know, on teaching other people Haskell and um, doing more sort of Haskell research, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's so it's so fascinating the the story that you have. So you uh, when you say that you know there was something in your in your past the work that you'd done, I think as a master's student, you'd been you'd been work as a linguistic student, you'd been working on a uh, First Nations language. Um, yes, uh, I think it was particularly with respect to verbs. And, yeah, and the role yeah. that verbs played in this language, and it was that work that sparked something in you when you learned about what Haskell was. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the connection there, because you, you have a background in, uh, I mean, you, you, I'm going to ask you some questions about this, but you know, you, you did philosophy and linguistics at, at, in your, uh, university years. Uh, and there was a connection between these two things, uh, with respect to formal logic. Right. So, um, if you, you can kind of think of verbs as, as, um, you can kind of think of verbs as functions. And so verbs take a certain number of arguments. And so what I was, so the work that I did that was concentrated on um, a Salishan language called Coeur d'Alene, which was spoken roughly in the northern Idaho area. It's not quite, it's not quite dead. It was, it seemed like it was going to die at the time when I was doing this work, but there have been some revitalization efforts that are very exciting. Um, Anyhow, so I was um, – there were a group of us working on um, doing an analysis of these texts that were collected by a linguist named Gladys Reichard in the 1930s. She had provided some translation of these texts and also some very rough uh, what we call morphological analysis. These are languages that tend to – accrete a lot of prefixes and suffixes on on a word rather than have like a lot of individual words in a sentence the way English tends to do. <clears throat> and so um, she had broken some of the words up into some of their component parts and indicated what some of them might mean, but we were trying to do that more rigorously and um, standardize them uh, somewhat. So I was I was involved with that in graduate school, and then, yeah, I became really interested in the the argument structure of verbs, and um, the argument structure of verbs is really uh, it's really very similar to um, talking about argument structure of, uh, or talking about the arguments of a function in a programming language. Um, we do have zero argument verbs, and um, some verbs are sort of have variadic argument structure. <laughs> they can take different number of arguments depending on um, 
the context. So, yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was working on. And, and what, um, what, what, um, what, what drew you to philosophy and linguistics in the first place? Is there anything that ooh. you can say about that? I mean, I, I know these kinds of things just kind of come come out of people sometimes, but was there anything right. specific? I mean, it's, it's the same for me. Like if someone asked me that question, I'd have a hard time answering it. But but is there anything you can say about about that? Well, philosophy, I always knew um, going, when I went to college, I always knew I wanted to major in philosophy. Um, I got interested I really got interested heavily in philosophy um, my senior year of high school. I was uh, I was a debater. Um, I don't know if you know much about uh, competitive debate, but I was a Lincoln-Douglas debater. And so Lincoln-Douglas debaters debate – there's two kinds. There's um, Lincoln-Douglas debaters are contrasted with policy debaters. Lincoln-Douglas debaters are debating sort of questions of values. So they're questions of whether something should be the case or whether something ought to be the case rather than like with policy, it's, you know, sort of policy decisions and they debate very technical questions of, of fact, whereas the Lincoln-Douglas debaters are debating more sort of ideas. And so um, <clears throat> the policy debaters that I know are going to going to kill me for saying that facts aren't ideas. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I got really into being a Lincoln-Douglas debater. And I remember, um, so one of my best friends um, that year was really into Kant um, for some reason, which I think is unusual probably for sophomores in high school. Um, he was younger than me. And um, so he was really into, uh, you know, the categorical imperative and um, – and um just all things Kant and um I was I really felt behind because I mean I moved I moved right before my senior year of high school and so the school where I had gone before was really rural and nobody read philosophy there and um and I felt really behind. So when I got up there and I realized, well, there are all these, I'm surrounded by all these kids who are talking about Kant and Plato and all this stuff. I had to, I felt like I had to do a lot of catching up to do. So I read a lot of philosophy my senior year of high school. Um, I was in a debate actually, um, where we had, I had debated this topic already several times. I forget exactly what the, what the proposition we were debating was, but something to do with democracy. And, I thought I knew what everybody's counter arguments already were. And then the guy I was debating in this one round stood up and said, well, you know, according to Plato, democracy isn't even good. And I was just, I mean, it just completely threw me for a loop. And I was like, okay, I have to, <laughs> I have to read more. I have to catch up on this because I can't be thrown for a loop like this. Um, so that's when I started reading a lot of philosophy. And so I knew going into college that I wanted to, to study philosophy. And my first year of college, I took an introduction to logic and a survey of Western philosophy, and um, <clears throat> I also took a philosophy of law class, and they were all really, really interesting. So I stuck with that through um, the whole the whole four years, and even in grad school, I took a couple of philosophy classes. But then linguistics, actually, um, it just happened. I took an intro to linguistics class as an elective one semester, and I just. I didn't know anything about linguistics before I took that class and I didn't know that I would like it so much, but I just loved it. And I instantly added it as a major and, um, and started taking linguistics classes. It was just the right, I mean, a lot of philosophy is already talking about, um, is already really talking about language because the, 
um, there's a lot of philosophy focused on, you know, analyzing meaning, right. And the, and the logical structures of language and, and, um, and so there's, a, I mean, I think there's a really immediate connection, but with linguistics, then the, it was sort of that structure of language, but we were also, unlike the philosophers, we were sort of gathering empirical data about it and seeing if our theories actually fit the, the data that we can see in, in human language around the world, not just the couple of languages that we happen to speak. Um, so, you know, if you speak, like, say, English and German and you're comparing them and trying to get some deeper um, idea of what language is all about, well, they're closely related languages, so you're going to have a very skewed perspective. And uh, it interested me to see, to start seeing the data from a whole bunch of different languages that are, that really share very few things in common. And then what can we really say about the, the universal properties or structures of, of human language? And um, so I think it was a really natural fit for, from my interest in philosophy to, you know, to, to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, thanks for sharing that story. Um, it's, uh, you're reminding me of uh, some very, Long lost memories of debate <laughs> in high school. I, I, I in particular got I got unfortunately paired with someone who was um, vain and ambitious and not very smart. Mm. Uh, and so in the the way it worked in like the school where I was in in Canada in Saskatchewan, just north of you in Montana, was the the, the final the final words spoken were referred to as the prime minister's address or something like that. And so my partner being vain and ambitious and stupid um, always wanted to give because it was called if it had been called the subordinates address, he wouldn't have wanted mm. to do it. But we, right. because it was called the prime minister's address, he wanted to give it. And what he would do is when the opponent was giving the second last statement, he would be writing out on paper word for word what he wanted to say without listening. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> just like dumb uh and uh you could just see the judges like they would while the opponent was speaking they would see what he was doing and just be like you lose yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway um i wanted to i wanted to ask you about there's actually you brought up the categorical imperative in kant yeah um, and uh so for those listening who might not know the categorical imperative is this very important concept in philosophy and politics according to which basically you can you can only justify an action if it can be, if it could be accepted as a universal rule. Right. So, so if, if, if you would say anybody under similar circumstances could do, if you would, if you, it would be acceptable for anyone under similar circumstances to do a similar thing, then something's okay. And it's, it's really interesting because it's exactly the opposite of another very popular political idea, which is why should I pay for this? Right. Uh, you know, why, why, the, the, the why should I question? I was listening to a, um, there's this great podcast based on an organization called Intelligence Squared in the UK, and hmm. uh, where they debate, they bring prominent people to, in front of a crowd to debate a question, and they, they poll people before the debate and then after the debate uh, to see uh, how it turned out. And there was, there was one, it was, it, was, it was about NATO or something like that, and there was a guy who got up and said, you know, I'm from, I'm from Texas. Why should I care about NATO? Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's, there's a connection between these two things of, of, of making politics about everybody and making politics all about yourself. Right. And I'm not really sure what I want to ask about that. It, it just, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because um, 
the whole point of a debate is to be persuasive to other people. And I guess I guess that's probably what sparked me was the thought about my debating partner for whom it was all about himself uh, and who ended up embroiled in a political uh, corruption catastrophe later. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, this is a way of saying that, you know, the, the, the kind of things that, that people uh, talk about in philosophy are really important to our day-to-day -day lives. And so I wanted to ask you a, a particular question um, about philosophy. I warned you about this before we started yeah. sort of recording. But so um, you were talking about Heidegger on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, for those who might not be aware, and I'm going on way too long uh, in, no, in a podcast interview with someone else. <laughs> but <laughs> just to explain a little bit. So Heidegger was a 20th century philosopher who wrote a great deal about a great many things, uh, yep. particularly subjects like phenomenology. He ends up in the Venn diagram of his philosophy it overlaps many things including existentialism uh, mm -hmm. and another thing that it greatly overlaps with is nazism uh, he was a an unrepentant nazi um yep. he endorsed it you know at the time when many 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 other people uh, and his colleagues were very dead set against it uh, this is before the second world war um yep. and so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna read your your tweet back to you this is totally okay. unfair uh, but I know I know you're 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 tough and you you'll you'll defend it. But so you you write and so anyway. So I should say part of the there's this debate in philosophy about what should we do with Heidegger because much of his philosophy would appear to have nothing whatsoever to do with the Nazis. But then there he was, this unrepentant Nazi, and you know he right. he would claim that you know it was from his philosophy that he got interested in this Hitler guy. So you write you wrote and there are many people who say. Just to close this off, there are many people who say, oh, no, no, we can separate at least part of his philosophy from his Nazism. And so you wrote, after I learned about it, I could see reading him how his own arguments led him to that. So I object when people try to make bringing up his Nazism seem like an ad hominem fallacy. It's a thing that has to be contended with in any honest analysis of his arguments. And that's one of the best tweets I've ever read. And I wanted to <laughs> ask you, uh, so wh what, what, how did you see his Nazism in Heidegger's philosophy? Well, you know, it's all right. So it's been a while since I've read um, being in time now. So I, I may um, have to speak a, a bit, uh, be a bit hand wavy about Heidegger's concepts. But um, yeah, I mean, I think for a while there, um, you know, people were trying to really say that the two things could be uh, disconnected that um, him that maybe even you know a lot of academics felt forced to become to become Nazis but they didn't really believe in it but I think that I think that I mean in particular not just in being in time and some of his philosophy of technology is perhaps um, yeah. maybe less connected but I think in being in time when he's talking about um, with the way he talks about sort of being thrown into a into a into a culture and um, the ways that we have um, connections to other people and the ways that sort of people, um, yeah, I'm being very hand wavy, but the ways that people who are like each other are going to have sort of more natural sympathies and they kind of belong together. And I felt that that that. Um, that you can really see the seeds of a kind of racial or ethno-nationalism there. And um, so I think that um, seeing the – well, I mean, I don't know that you can really separate the, you know, the anti-Semitism from Nazism, but 
I think you can see the seeds then of the ethno-nationalism, not particularly the anti-Semitism, but the, the ethno-nationalism there in, in the way he feels that we're connected to um, to other people around us. I think there are other ways to interpret um, the sort of care relationships and the um, kind of... Uh, the kind of dialogic relationships and the intersubjectivity. I think there are healthier ways that we can interpret those. <laughs> um, and so I think that that the book still has something valuable to offer, but like you, you kind of have to acknowledge that taken in one direction, this, this notion that our identity is um, intersubjective and related to the identities of the people who are around us can, can definitely lead you in that direction. It can lead to um, the white supremacy and, and white nationalism, because you think you have some connection with white people that you don't have with people of other races or, in the case of the Germans that, you know, that you have some connection with people who are racially German and not these invaders, these outsiders who don't feel the same, um, you know, activity with you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's really, it's really interesting too. the, yeah, thanks for, the, thanks for bringing up the intersubjectivity thing. It's so, it's so interesting. And the, the, there's, there's another element to uh, it as well. I was saying before we started this 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 interview that um, you know I I was many many years ago I was asked in a in a defense of a master's thesis you know how was how did how what role did Kant play in bringing about the Nazis uh, and it's haunted me ever since because I didn't have a good I mean I gave a clever answer but I didn't have a good answer um, and one interesting feature that uh, of these of these let's say like late eighteenth century to early to mid 20th century German philosophers was the idea of having a, a total system. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what philosophy was about. And, and they had what to us, to many people nowadays would be a really weird kind of world historical view that was sort of would drop out of this idea of having a total system. And it meant you needed to have your philosophy needed to explain actual human history. Right. Um, and then just given, given the particular nature of, let's say the, let's say the, religious and cultural world they were coming from this this meant you had to explain the jews right and so it wouldn't it couldn't be historical accident there had to be you know so you know a, a sort of about uh you know the diaspora and 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 things like that and and, and even particularly for some philosophers explaining this so so controversial and 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 has such a fraught history but you know the claims on particularly on the part of catholicism about you know the jews killing Jesus. Right. And that it's, it's, it's so, it's so fascinating, but perverse to think of having to, you're writing a philosophy that might be about like, you know, like Kant, like, you know, about so many things about reason and politics, perception even. And then you've got to tie all that into the history of the Jews. Right. Uh, and so it, and then, so it can end up, it can, it can seem to sort of contemporary to a contemporary reader where you don't even notice what's really going on underneath a lot of what's being said because you just but, think it's about the perception or it's about the politics. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, my, when I took a, a course on Nietzsche in college, um, the professor that I had, we, we talked a lot about how the, the, the Nazis sort of use Nietzsche to, you know, promote themselves and, and, this idea, uh, sorry, Aryan ideal. And, um, I think I was trying to combine Aryan and ideal into one portmanteau, but, um, <clears throat> the, 
and how my my professor was really sympathetic to Nietzsche and thought that he had been you know wildly misinterpreted and so we did he gave this whole you know sort of alternate reading of Nietzsche in which Nietzsche is sort of anti-Nazi and um, I mean I think that the you know I don't necessarily think that he was wrong about that. I don't necessarily think that he was wrong that Nietzsche was being sarcastic in some of the things that then the, the Nazis took literally. Um, but, you know, it's also a plausible story that Nietzsche fits into that history of, of you know, German philosophy and that he was being um, more literal and that the Nazis weren't wrong in the way that they interpreted him. And so I think that people need to be really kind of careful about what they say and what the the consequences like how that leads people to um to to reach certain conclusions and maybe if you didn't intend those conclusions then maybe you um need to rethink what you're saying (laughs) i mean you know nietzsche's dead and died long before world war ii so um he didn't really have an opportunity if he if he would have rephrased um but yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. You you reminded me of something else. Actually, I found that you wrote about um, your opposition to philosophical hero worship, uh, and how you know that you wrote, you wrote that the first two philosophers who really spoke to you were not really very admirable people. And yeah, it's it's interesting. I I you know for some people, and I I I I get the sense that this is totally true for you, and it's totally true for me that you can you can and you the concept of entertaining a thought rather than sort of holding a thought. Yeah, uh, comes naturally. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's not like that. They think that if you're sort of writing a paper about Nietzsche, you must, unless you're expressly denouncing him, right? Then you must be a, a proponent of his. That if right. you, if you, if you, for example, if you if you take a course on Buddhism, that means you're becoming a Buddhist or something like that. Right. Right. And it's these very different, very different mindsets and. So that that actually leads me to so the next question I want to ask you was um, getting closer to sort of the tech space which you're now you're now part of and you have yeah. a few years now. So you wrote this. This really struck me. Having a philosophy degree means having a four year degree and giving sexists the benefit of the doubt. Oh, uh, and, and it barely caused me a moment's pause. But the difference between that environment and the one I currently work in is staggering. So I've got two questions from that. What is it that makes the philosophy environment do you think so kind of toxically masculine so often hmm i mean even though uh by far the majority of like my professors in the philosophy department and the fellows my fellow students in the philosophy department by by far they were the men outnumbered the women um <clears throat> i didn't really um I didn't really feel like it was a very toxically masculine space. I mean, I always felt, at least in my own program and stuff, and maybe I was just particularly blessed, but um, I always felt like it was, all right, it it was definitely expected that we would uh, exercise the principle of charity in our reading, and so, um, you know, we would... um, not just, you know, find that Aristotle is sexist and therefore we're going to dismiss everything else that he says, because then we would have to be dismissing, you know, so much of the history of Western philosophy. Um, But that, you know, your arguments against um, him, against his more, against the more, more sexist things that you would read or the, 
arguments that you were taught would always be sort of bracketed by, okay, we have to assume that, you know, these days he would accept that this also applies to women or whatever. And so I never really felt like it was, um, that there was this kind of, I guess, I mean, well, I guess I'm becoming more familiar with just calling it um, misogyny because I'm reading Kate Mann's book Down Girl right now. And um, if we think of misogyny as not, uh, you know, sort of particular actions of, you know, sort of being sex, being overtly sexist towards other people, but in fact, a sort of system by which we sort of try to keep women in certain roles. I never felt like my philosophy department at least was like that. Um, I felt, I always felt like me and the other women there were, you know, full and equal participants in the dialogue and that our criticisms of philosophy were taken just as seriously as the other students. And, you know, nobody said that we should be, um, I mean, one of the things that like I hear a lot in the discourse in tech, um, is so women um, will bring up something that is clearly sexist or um, bring up these sort of this kind of this kind of culture of misogyny in the tech world and um, instantly they'll be asked you know to have more um, empathy for the the men who are sexist and um, it's, like, I guess there's a relation to that being asked in philosophy to read all of these philosophers with, you know, in the, in the most charitable way possible, right? I guess there's a connection between those two things, but here it seems much more um, like a silencing mechanism, whereas in philosophy it's like, okay, if you don't read these things with as charitably as possible, then we will never get anywhere because – all of our time will be spent, you know, we'll just have to dismiss them because they are clearly sexist. Whereas in tech, it seems like we can't really have an honest conversation about sexism because, or misogyny, because I mean, it just, they're, they're, such arguments are dismissed out of hand. So the, the charity really only goes one way. And the, um, and I think in the philosophy world, it didn't, it went both ways. So, we were supposed to read philosophical texts charitably, but our arguments against them were also listened to charitably because of course, sometimes we made bad arguments against them. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those arguments were also listened to charitably. And I feel like in tech, it only really ever goes one way. And so the arguments that there are these problems with misogyny in the tech world are not um, listened to charitably. People are going to argue with me about that because, of course, in, in Haskell, everybody thinks that the quote-unquote SJWs are taking over the world and oppressing the white men. So um, people are going to argue with me that, that it's not being listened to charitably, but I stand by my words. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's actually really um, – uh, if you're up for talking about it, um, the, the I, I was very sort of happy and, and surprised to hear you bring up the concept of charity. This is one of the sort of driving – concepts behind my own experience of, of reading philosophy. And the idea is that the idea behind a charitable reading or listening to of someone else's argument is not, it's not being nice. Right. Um, it's about someone is saying something or you're reading something that someone else has written and you, you relate to it as though it means the 
best and most complex thing you can get out of it. Right. It's about bringing your best to what you're reading. And, and, and this is where the concept of entertaining a thought exactly. becomes yeah. so important, right? You're not, you're not saying this is what the person intended. This is what the person meant. But taking these words, I can actually see what, what's the most complex thing I can see in them. Right. And this is exactly the opposite of the, uh, I think his name was Justin Demore. Uh, yeah. Uh, the guy at Google. Uh, it's exactly the opposite of that attitude. It's exactly the opposite of the siren song of, you know, the Jordan Petersons of yes. the world. Yeah. Who ask you to bring the least of yourself into your examination of what other people are saying. Right. And what, what's, what's, I mean, just what's your experience been of, of seeing that, that particularly this, this kind of phenomenon of what, I mean, it, it's a, it's a profoundly anti-intellectual, which is not an insult, by the way, an, an anti-intellectual movement that yeah. characterizes itself as intellectual under the auspices of the Jordan Petersons. And there's this guy whose name I can never remember, who's a neuroscientist who got in a big fight with Ezra Klein. Uh, anyway, uh, um, yeah, you know, it's funny because in college we all, one of the, um, one of the most dreaded classes for a philosophy major, you had to pass it with a C or higher as part of, it was required for the major. And it was this class in formal logic. And, um, it was one of our only interactions, I suppose, with, um, the people who are majoring in STEM fields, because for some reason it was an elective for computer science majors, I believe the formal logic class, because we talked about Turing machines and we talked about, um, you know, decidability and the Lambda calculus and, you know, formal logic questions. So, um, we, that was one of my only interactions with, you know, the computer science majors on, on our campus. And, um, you know, they all, clearly had the idea that they were more, uh, you know, rigorous and, um, logical than, than we philosophy majors, right. Particularly probably those of us who were continental philosophy majors. Um, and it was just, so I guess I had, I guess I had to some degree internalized this idea that, you know, well, programmers are going to be logical people, right. <laughs> But of course, that can mean different things. And so, um, and it doesn't necessarily, just because you're able to reason through um, programs or a mathematical proof, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can reason through um, verb, verbal arguments about, you know, social, society and values and culture, right? Because those are sort of different things. They don't quite submit to precisely the same kind of logic. Those things tend, they're not quantifiable in the same way that, um, you know, questions in math and programming might be. So, um, but I did come to this with this sort of expectation, expectation that programmers were all going to be really logical and they were going to be really open to listening to, to reason. And, um, I've just not found that to be true as long as we're talking about any kind of cultural question, even questions that are, about tech culture itself. So like, there's always this people arguing about whether or not static typing is good and the static typing evangelist kind of, which Haskell is a statically typed language. Um, and so the Haskellers or certain subset of the Haskellers take this really hard line stance pro static typing, right? All the languages should be statically typed. And then there's other people who get angry about that and are 
no, statically typed languages are too hard. And so there's this constant clash about this. And it's like they're not listening to each other in any and it's not just Twitter. It gets blamed on the medium of Twitter a lot, but it's not just Twitter in any forum where they're talking to each other. You can see the same kinds of talking past each other that go on on Twitter. Just in Twitter, it's some sort of a shortened form of it. <clears throat> and so um, I really wish that, uh, yeah, that this idea of being able to like entertain a thought, being able to ask yourself, all right, this thought, it is repellent to me perhaps, but let me entertain for a few moments. What if it were true? You know, what kind of mm -hmm. arguments could be um, marshaled in its defense, right? What kind of evidence could be marshaled in its defense? And um, because that's what really helps you find, like, you've had, maybe you've had some kind of initial emotional reaction against something. Certainly I do all the time, right? I read something and I think, ah, this is sexist and it's terrible. But, <laughs> but that's not really a helpful I mean, it's fine for Twitter to, to just react to things, but it's not very helpful long term, right? You have to think, okay, beyond my emotional reaction, like what is if, – if I held this thing to be true for just a moment and thought as well as I can, what if it were true? What if I'm wrong, right? Then um, what can I get out of that? And, and in the end, it makes your own – I mean, it makes you understand yourself better. It makes you understand other people better. But it also makes your own, you know, sort of arguments more reasoned and and interesting and more likely to be true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really it's really interesting that you, um, you know, that this this sort of, um, I guess, dialectic between the sort of strictures of formal logic that you find in language and the arbitrariness of culture. Yeah. And it's the latter part that I think there's a certain type of mindset finds very difficult to embrace. Yeah. You know, they'll say that like, well, no, that word doesn't mean that because look it up in the dictionary. And it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, the dictionary is just one thing right. that establishes the meaning of a word. Right. Uh, other things are context and that context is, you know, historically arbitrary. Right. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's very curious. So, you know, those, you brought it, you brought up content. It's, it's so interesting. Like one of the things that I found sort of fun researching this interview, researching for this interview is this, you know, the, the total, totally natural way that you have managed to embrace, you know, the formal logic side of things and the arbitrary cultural sort of, um, uh, continental philosophy kind of things, <laughs> uh, which is quite, I find quite, quite, quite rare. Most people kind of fall on one side or right. the other. Yeah, dogs uh, and cats, you know, lying down together, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was, it was interesting. I was, um, you know, I was, um, so, so, so for those who kind of, you know, are slightly offended perhaps by the, because they sense that they're being targeted by, you know, part, we know if I'm talking about people who have problems with the arbitrariness of culture or language, you've got lots of friends in philosophy. There is a guy named Rudolf Carnap, for example, and the logical positivists yes. who would be very much on your side. What they, they, they tried to kind of amputate history and culture from yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's, there's a great line in his, he's got this piece called this article called in English, the elimination of metaphysics through logical analysis of language. Uh, <laughs> in, the, in the opening paragraph, there's, the, I mean, it always strikes me as how, like naive this stuff is but he writes whether or not these questions can be answered it is at any rate unnecessary to worry about them let us devote ourselves entirely to the practical tasks which confront active men every day of their lives yeah exclamation point 
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, I, you know, I, 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 it, it, that's hilarious from a certain mindset. For, from another mindset, that's like, what could be more reasonable than that? Right. Let us set aside these things that can't be decided and focus on the things that can be decided. Right. And it seems to me that that's, that's sort of like one of the explanations for why the sort of Jordan Peterson types think that they're intellectuals and think that they're philosophers is that they are thinking, but they're not, they're not thinking curiously. Right. What they want is answers. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. Um, and, um, and they want answers for, for very specific questions, right? Like if, um, <clears throat> I just read a great, uh, he's actually on Twitter. I think he's the last positivist. So he's a Carnap fan. And, um, but he wrote a great, uh, blog post the other day about, um, what logic is. And, and he talks about how really being logical shouldn't lead you to answers. It should lead you to new questions. It should lead you to new ways of, of looking at the world and trying to see other people's point because you should be trying to come up with like, you know, models of the world in which things that other people are saying are true. Now maybe they're not true in, in our world, but you should at least be trying to, and that should lead you to new questions. And so um, it's funny because coming from, I think a guy who identifies as a positivist and is a big Carnap fan, it's a sort of funny, it was, struck me as slightly funny, but, um, but I think he's right. Like for me, that's what logic and philosophy are all about. It's, you should always be looking for the, for new questions to ask. Um, and you know, I, I have this story that I tell people sometimes because, um, I think it's quite funny. Um, and, but it got me talking about something with Chris Martin, my current business partner. Um, there, there was a time in college when I joined this group, um, one of the campus groups called, they were called the League of Evil Physicists. <laughs> and um, the guy who was like the leader of the group, the president of the club or whatever, he insisted that Aristotle was not a philosopher. And so I had, I don't know why this came up in conversation so many times, but I eventually left the, um, I mean, I was asked to leave the, the League of Evil Physicists because <laughs> um, I kept insisting that no, indeed, Aristotle is a philosopher. But it's like, I think that when philosophy is asking the kinds of questions that can be answered, those tend to then get sh get sort of shunted into other fields. Like if you're asking so a lot of the philosophy of math started out asking questions that, well, now we have some answers. Um, so some of the questions that they were asking, for example, about decidability, well, now we have some answers about that. And so now it's not considered to be philosophy as much anymore. Now it's math. Um, and some of the some of the questions that Aristotle was asking, well, those have some of those now have answers, right? They have answers through science. And so they're not considered to be philosophy anymore. So I think there is some perspective under which I can understand his insistence that Aristotle wasn't a philosopher. He was a scientist, but it also seems, um, so such a narrow insistence on, or an insistence on such a narrow definition of a word that, I mean, I just couldn't, I just couldn't tolerate it. Besides that, scientists don't write books of ethics. <laughs> well, that, uh, well, unfortunately they sometimes do. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's a curious phenomenon because it's 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 really interesting actually because 
being an intellectual and being a philosopher brings with it, like we all, we all sort of accept that there's a kind of elevated status that comes from that. Right. And so people who desire elevated status get attracted to it, even though they actually have no interest in it whatsoever. Right. No real interest in it whatsoever in, 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 you know, intellectual endeavors whatsoever. And so they put on their glasses like Rick Perry, or they put on their bow tie. Right. Or they, they put on their tweed jacket with the leather elbow patches or even become professors yeah. and think, now I've got that elevated status, which is what they're really after. But what they're doing, you know, is not intellectual or philosophical at all. It reminds me of the, um, I had this encounter, I, I'm sure you've had some encounters like this too, but I, I got in a debate in high school with someone who was a sort of um, creationist and I was arguing for evolution and he was arguing against it mm-hmm. and it was clear, and this this was in like a at, a at a Mennonite boarding school in rural Saskatchewan. So it, it became quite a heated debate, and there were lots of people listening. Oh, and sure. um, uh, and I remember my sort of opponent uh, saved the best for last, and it was very clear after you know it it was sort of you know it was obvious that uh, you know more or less the position that I'd been taking had kind of won the day. And then he brought out his secret weapon, which was, but if evolution is true, then why are there still monkeys? Um, and, and what's interesting about that is the side kind of, to me, like I've thought about that since then, it's been decade, a couple of decades, but, uh, the solipsism of it, uh, the, uh, the rhetorical nature of the question, you know, and it's like, there's, there's this, you know, if you, if you stop thinking yourself about the questions that you're asking, you know, that's when you know, you're not doing philosophy anymore, right? Because you, it's a, it's a constant challenging of yourself yep. that you really need to be engaged in. And there's other forms of thinking. They're just not philosophy. Right. Yep. So thanks for being game for talking about all that. <laughs> so pretty, pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but it is, it is, it is related to uh, your, what, what brought you into the Haskell world. Yes. Um, and so moving on, moving on to the next part of the interview, what, what is it that for those who like, don't know anything about it. What is it that sets Haskell apart from other programming languages and makes it so attractive to, I mean, I know, I've experienced this myself in interviews, you know, with people with a sort of philosophical mindset. Um, so I think there are several things, and one of them is probably because Haskell started off life as a research language. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really intended, at least originally, for, you know, industrial production programming. Um, and there's still um, there's still a lot of research that goes on around Haskell and trying out different improvements or extensions um, to, for example, the type system. Um, and so at... And so being in, really involved in Haskell um, involves still, like you know, a lot of debating about, um, you know, what is sort of the optimal type system, right? And a lot of languages that are, a lot of languages other than Haskell, like within Haskell, there is a a fair bit of that experimentation and debate going on, but also several of the languages that are um, sort of post-Haskell, but related to Haskell pretty clearly, like PureScript and Idris, um, they're asking different questions or they're taking some things that we've learned from Haskell or some questions that have come up 
during these debates and they're thinking, well, like, what if we built a language around this idea instead of what Haskell did, right? What if we made some different choices with the type system? And, um, and so there's a lot of, I mean, that is uh, a certain a certain kind of philosophy, right? That is a certain kind of philosophical question, right? How we can, um, you know, what is optimal for for this human computer interaction of programming? Because a lot of what you're trying to do when you talk about type systems is come up with um, some some way to help the to ask the computer to help you reason through a complex program as part of what type systems are for if we go back to that idea that type systems should help you generate all the legal programs in your language there i said it much better this time (laughs) (laughs) and and not let you generate illegal programs in your language so so to the extent that we can encode different type systems in in a computer and the compiler can figure out your types for you like to a certain extent then the debate there is sort of a philosophical question like what's the what's the optimal balance between what the computer should be doing to help program and what the <clears throat> what the human should be doing right and how can there be a a cooperation there instead of just you know um and I don't think Haskell is currently at that optimum. Um, I think it's, but I think it's important because it's right now it's the one that is, I think, in my opinion, um, closest to the optimum while also being sort of a good language for you know fast enough and and secure enough and so forth for industrial programming, and so. Right now, I think it strikes a, a balance that few other languages are doing, um, where we do have some help reasoning reasoning about the logic of our programs from the computer because the computer is type-checking programs. Uh, and that's not a perfect system by any means, but there is some, some help there instead of just, well, I wrote a thing and let's run it and see if it, if it blows up. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and just to, just to uh, sort of... I mean, I know in your pedagogical practice, you know, sort of practical examples and working through them is, is a very important part of uh, teaching. Yeah. Um, you know, just talking about something is, is you know, is very important, but um, sort of working through something specifically is also very important. And so you, you've, you've talked about how addition, and then this is, I'm trying to draw the connection between, you know, sort of what's happening in the sort of rough and tumble, sort of very practical hands-on world of what a computer is doing and what people are doing in their calculations and how we describe them. And, and you've, you've talked about how addition is disjunctive. Oh yeah. Is that, is that right? And, yeah. and multiplication is conjunctive. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just explain, explain that a little bit. So, I mean, how, how this sort of like the, the, cause you, you've, you've also got a really great talk that I'll link to on YouTube about how metaphor underlies math. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Um, so if you could if you could maybe explain a little bit about what you mean when uh, what it means to say that sort of addition is disjunctive and multiplication is conjunctive, I think that'll give us a really practical hands-on example of of this intersection of log- of logic and what we're doing in our day-to-day activities. You know, calculate. Right. Okay. So um, the disjunctive and conjunctive is um, coming from Boolean logic, and um, where the idea is that with a say a normal boolean disjunction which is an or um you've got you know a true or false is 
equals true, right? And the only time you get a false is when it's false or false. So when both sides, when both arguments are false. So um, if we think of false as zero, um, so if we were going to encode this in a binary system, because it's a two-valued logic, so it's this similar to binary arithmetic. It's analogous to binary arithmetic with a zero and a one. So if, if we think of false as being zero, then um, – and zero is – in the same way that false is an identity value, we call it for disjunction, um, zero is the identity value for addition. And so um, so the two operations are very closely related. There's other ways that they're related, and if we talk about um, – if we talk about uh, set theory, then we can see how they are related through um, what's – I guess it would be through disjoint unions. So when you take the union of two sets, right, if there's a, the same element appears in both sets, then since um, – then we wouldn't have um, – then we would get rid of one of those copies, right? Because when you do the, because each element in the set should be unique, and so um, when you take the union of two of them, if there is overlap, then we get rid of those extra elements. But if you take disjoint unions, disjoint unions tag essentially carry information about which set they came from, and so you know the number one coming from set A and the number one coming from set B then are unique and so we can keep both of them then when we take the union of the sets and so then there's also a correspondence with um with addition and with boolean disjunction because they um behave the same way and we can encode them all the same way through like binary arithmetic so um then we see that um, multiplication and Boolean conjunction. With Boolean conjunction, true is the identity value, which would correspond to like one in binary arithmetic. And um, you only get a true because it's like an and. And so you only get a true if both sides are true. And so true and false is false. And um, all the rest of them are. And so um, all the rest of the pairings. And so that corresponds to um, like multiplication, where multiplication, if we think of false as zero and true as one, one is your identity value for multiplication, where anything you multiply times one, it returns that other argument, right? No matter how big the number is, no matter how small the number is, if you multiply it times one, it's whatever that number is. And it's the same thing then with, um, it has the same relationship in Boolean conjunction if you think of true as one and false as zero. And you can join them, then you get a one only when it's true and true. And the rest of the times, the zero, which we might call the absorbing element or the annihilating element, I really like calling it the annihilator. Um, and that's that is a mathematical term. <laughs> so it'll you know destroy its other its other argument. And 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 so sorry sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but just um from so, so being a non non technical oh, yeah, person sure. myself, so the 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 and so. Apologies to anyone listening to this for whom everything is really obvious, uh, but the the identity value in addition is zero because if you add zero to something, you get the same result. Right. And the identity value, and that corresponds, zero corresponds to false, right. but the identity value in multiplication is one right. because if you multiply something by one, you get the same result. That's right. And, and one is like true and zero is like false. Right. 
So when we talk about an identity value, it's always an identity value with respect to both a set of values and a specific operation. So like, you know, there's an identity value from say the integers for multiplication, but there's not just an identity value in the integers. Does that make sense? It's always with respect to some operation. So. Right. And, and annihilator that, that, I mean, it's just fun to say, Yes. uh, but uh, (laughs) I mean, is that like I take anything and multiply it by zero and I get zero. Right. So whatever other, you know, information you had in that pairing will get destroyed by the presence of the zeros. Sort of like when you do a set intersection, if one of those is the empty set, then it destroys everything that was in the other set. It just blows it right up. And is it, is this, there's something about this that's related to the, I think there's a concept in Haskell that you can't have an empty list. Is that right? Or am I totally making that up well we have empty lists and then we have another data type for four non-empty lists where you're guaranteed to have no empty lists um but this like um with uh when we're talking about lists like the normal thing you do when you join lists is called concatenation where you basically take this list and this list and you add them together into one list and it doesn't change anything in either of the lists, right? It keeps all of the elements. It just joins them into a single list. But we have another way that you can join lists where you join them sort of pairwise and you make pairs out of, so like if you've got a list of one, two, three, and a list of four, five, six, then you make little pairs of like one, four, and two, five, and three, six, and you make pairs, and your new list then is this pairwise joining of the lists. And for that one, because that's that corresponds to products or conjunction, the empty list will also destroy that. You can't make a pair. Okay. You can't make a pairing like a pairwise list of two lists if one of them is empty. So, okay. Uh, and uh, since this is the interview of easy questions. I'm joking. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, the next question I wanted to ask you is the one that I'm sure everyone who knows about Haskell has been waiting for me to ask, which is what are monads? Uh, and I've got just, just, just a, as a kind of joke, like when I first encountered this, I was like, oh, Leibniz. Uh, right. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I started talking about it and sort of like, you know, my computer programming colleagues were like, what the hell are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I was like, so what, we have, like, little gods in the type system? What is this? <laughs> or, or little, like, you know, every part of the universe has the whole of the universe in right, it kind of right. thing. Uh, but uh, so what in, in Haskell terms, uh, and I know this is, the, it's actually like kind of a fun subject of debate about burritos and metaphors and things like that. But so what, what from your, in your terms, what, how would you explain what monads are to people who are getting into Haskell? Okay, well, um... I think that they're kind of hard to explain to people who don't know anything about Haskell, although I've seen some really good write-ups about what they are with, like, JavaScript. But, um, all right, so what we've been talking about with the relationship between addition, disjunction, and list concatenation, where we add two lists together and set disjoint unions, when we think when we consider, like, the relationship between those things, how they all share certain properties, and we can re-encode those in terms of each other. Does that make sense so far? Not exactly, but it doesn't need to make sense to me. It needs to make sense <laughs> to people listening. So I'm, not, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> no, no, I want it to make sense to you. But So 
Um, okay. We talked about the connection between addition and Boolean disjunction, right? How they both have, mm-hmm. in some sense, the same identity value, for example. And so there's this connection between them. And we can sort of abstract away from the details about these different sets, say the set of integers and the set of Boolean values. If we consider each of those a set, we can abstract away from the differences between those because there clearly are differences, right? Like Hmm. between the set of integers and the two valued set of Boolean values, right? There clearly are some differences, but if we abstract away from that, we can call that, um, that's called a monoid. So a monoid is a set so, for example, Boolean values or integers, along with an operation like addition or Boolean disjunction, but we don't have to care about those details, that is associative, so you can regroup it and evaluate it in different orders. Does that make sense? I th- so, okay, uh, let me see if I get this. So It's easier with visuals, I swear. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm think I'm thinking back to one of one of your talks that I was just watching on YouTube last night. So is this the kind of thing where so let's say I've got two sides to an operation. Mm-hmm. There can be many different operations with two sides to them. Right. And so you abstract away from whether it's addition that's happening or multiplication that's happening or concatenation that's happening. Right. But there are two sides to it and that's what makes something I mean with respect to the type of thing that has two, and I probably shouldn't have used that word, with respect to the type of thing that has two sides, abstracting away from it, that's a monad of the kind that has two sides to it? Close. We're getting close. So that's that's what we call a monoid, and there's a type class for, in Haskell, called monoid that is for monoid operations. So uh, monad is sort of a... um, a, a next level, a higher level monoid. So where, but monad is also, it's complicated because monad is not just a monoid, but also functor. And so functors are... Also a, also a fun word to say. Yes. Yeah. And that came from Carnap, actually. The word functor comes from Carnap. Um, but so functors are at their most basic. They're just like, if we have a type or a value, sorry, that has some other layer. Let's say you've got um, an integer and you want to do some addition to it, but what you have is not just an integer. It's an integer wrapped in some other type because in Haskell we have these things called higher kinded types, which are types that take other types as arguments. So they're sort of type level functions. And that's a lot to go into um, if you're not already familiar with Haskell. But if you want to do addition on that integer that is wrapped in some other type layer, you have to have a special function called a functor to sort of get at that value. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And so a monad is a combination of a monoid and a functor. So it's you've got some integer, say, for example, embedded in some other type context, and you want to um, chain because monads are sort of for chaining operations together. And so you've got, you want to apply first addition, for example, to that integer, and then you want to do some multiplication to that integer. And at the end, you have to sort of doing addition on that integer and then doing multiplication on that integer, let's say, would generate more type structure. 
And so then you have to like smash mm. the layers of type structure together. So a monad where a monoid is a set that has some operation like addition over it that you can do with it. A monad is a set or a type that has such an operation for it. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, at least for the next two minutes <laughs> uh, in my, in my working memory. So uh, I actually, wrote... I, should, I should, I should say that one of, one of, um, one of Julie's really key points that she makes in all of her, her, her writing and speaking is that actually seeing examples of things yeah. uh, is, is really important and working through them. And so having these kinds of explaining things or describing things at this abstract level is very important. Yeah. Uh, but things only, you, you only, but things really start to make sense when you do them. Yes. So I have a, I wrote a blog post, um, that attempts to explain what monads are for people. I don't know that it's, mm, that the ideal audience is someone who's never programmed before, but, um, you know, the ideal audience is for it is someone who has, has programmed before, but not in Haskell and wants to know what, just wants to know what monads are without a lot of extraneous information. And it just goes through an example, um, to, to demonstrate what, what monads are and what they're for and why we have them in Haskell. Um, Haskell's sort of weird because, um, Haskell's really big on these abstractions. They're all, most of these abstractions come from abstract algebra so a monoid is an abstract is a is a structure and abstract algebra and, and a monad, and um, you know, ri- rings and groups and stuff. And um, and Haskell sort of took that idea that well, you know, the, the algebraists and the mathematicians they talk about these structures, and a structure is a set and some operation over the set and some laws that the operation has to adhere to. And what if we sort of encoded that in the type system? What if, and so that's what type classes are all about. Type classes are about encoding these abstractions in the type system. And then the sets in question are types, right? Haskell types. And so um, Haskell is, and a lot of people find that really off-putting because then there's a lot of mathematical terminology in Haskell. Um, I think it's, um, I don't know. It's never really bothered me. I see how it can be off-putting to some other people because there's this sort of, when you first start learning Haskell, there's this real jargon overload because I think that um, there is though, like, so a point that I've tried to make is um, there is whenever you learn, start learning any programming language. So I started trying to learn um, some Java and um, we actually ended up writing a blog post for this as well. Like, and there were all these terms that, I mean, I just had no idea what they meant. And, but so many people learn Java in say call. Uh, can you hear me? And a lot of that jargon comes from C. And so if maybe you didn't learn Java in college, but you did learn C. And so you're already familiar with that, with that jargon. But for me coming at it from, I learned Haskell first and I'm comfortable with all of Haskell's jargon. And then the Java and C jargon is all just, I have no idea what they're talking about. 
it's it's really it's really interesting. You're reminding me of something I uh, I I think you said in a in a podcast I listened to um, where you're like you know you you know because of your background in mathematics and logic and things like that you know Haskell just and and linguistics you know Haskell just like oh I get it kind yeah. of thing when when, when you sort of first started encountering it. But the connection between HTML and CSS was a total mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I needed a I needed a book for that because I just didn't. Well, and my Chris Martin that I work with now, um, he's he really understood them and he really made it clear to me like what the relationship between the HTML and CSS was. But yeah, I mean to me that was just not obvious at all. And mm-hmm. so you know, there's that gift that always goes around of it's from some cartoon that I'm, I don't know, but where he's like trying to adjust the blinds and people say it's like it's like using CSS where you just have to like. Keep oh, family. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you you just have to keep like pulling on the strings and seeing what happens to you know. And it's like he actually showed me that no, you can actually like learn CSS, and if you sort of think carefully about your CSS and its relationship to the HTML, that like you don't, it doesn't have to be like that. And that was really um, both uh, eye opening and very welcome to me. It was very um, reassuring to me. I don't like just pulling on things and seeing what happens particularly. I mean, I do a lot of experimentation with Haskell in, um, but I don't, I do a lot of experimentation with Haskell like because I'm teaching it. And so I'm trying to find the ways that like different things will work, right? Well, what, what will happen? Because some student will ask me like, well, what happens if you do, you know, X, Y, and Z? So I want to know what happens if I do that. So I do a lot of experimentation for teaching purposes, but like if I'm actually sitting down to write a program or if I'm actually sitting down to design a website, I just want to sort of know what I'm doing to the largest extent possible. You know, (laughs) I don't, um, a lot of my friends who are programmers say stuff like, I just need to get in there and build it and learn while I'm building and stuff like that. And to me, that's such, such a frustrating experience. I want to feel like, I want to feel like there are, yes, there are ways, like correct ways to do this and you can discover them and you can learn them and they're part of a reasonable system (laughs) and not just like, well, anything goes and you just got to sort of hammer away at your keyboard, like the, you know, the thousand monkeys trying to type Shakespeare or whatever. Right. And eventually Shakespeare will come out. I I don't, I don't like that at all. uh... (laughs) <laughs> uh, so the last, the last before we move on to the last part of the interview, the, um, the last question I have to ask you about Haskell. So we've got we've got Julie Moronuki here, who literally wrote the book uh, on Haskell, at, and we've built up these concepts so far of you know monoids and monads mm-hmm. and annihilators and, and functors. So what are semi rings? Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm writing about semi rings right now, actually. Um, semi. So semi ring is when you have two monoids basically that are in a relationship with each other. So um, Again, if you think about addition and multiplication, and there's a relationship between addition and multiplication um, in a couple of ways. One of them is that the identity value of addition, which is zero, is the annihilator of multiplication. So there's that connection between the two. And um, the other connection is that multiplication distributes over addition and like I know I learned that when I was in you know elementary school we talked about distributivity and how I think it's I always have a hard time doing this when it's not on paper but I think it's like if you have 
you know, A times, in parentheses, B plus C. That's the same as A times B plus A times C. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Like I said, I'm really bad at doing that just in my head. So, um, and so the, what are called, sort of what's the, called the absorption law, where there's that relationship with the identity of one thing being the annihilator of the other. And then the distributivity, distributivity law connects, like say, addition and multiplication. And so a semi-ring is an algebra with some set such as integers, for example, where you have two monoids, such as addition and multiplication, and those are binary operations that have identity values. And there's, they're connected by that, um, by that absorption or annihilation and also by the distributivity. So integers under addition and multiplication are semi-ring. Um, there's also... Um, so Boolean logic also can form a semi-ring, um, because there is that relationship between conjunction and disjunction. Um, there is, um, there are also some semi-rings that are different in which the, like, one of the operations is not addition as we usually think of it. And so there are things that are... Mm, a bit of a stretch to see how they're related to those. But then Haskell's type system also forms a semi-ring because we have what are called sum types and we have product types. And the relationship between sums and products in Haskell's type system is the same as the, or analogous to the relationship between addition and multiplication. And so semi-rings are really interesting algebra that I'm kind of getting into lately. Tropical semi-rings are really fascinating. They're one of the ones that I think are kind of an extension. They're kind of a stretch to at first see how they're related to these other summer rings because the other ones are a little bit more analogous to each other. And their tropical summer rings are interesting because they're a little bit of a stretch. And so I've been reading a lot about them lately and they're quite fascinating. So, well, Thank you very much for that, that great description. Um, speaking uh, on the subject of hard things, uh, you co-wrote a book. Uh, you've done it a couple of yes. times. But writing a book with another person is can be very hard. Yeah. How did you and your current business partner, Chris Martin, work out a process for writing together? Um, yeah, our process for writing together, I think, is quite different from the process I went through for the first book. Um, so Chris and I work well together because we have really distinct strengths and weaknesses. So I really like writing with him because he always makes me see things from a perspective that I just couldn't see before. It's not just because he, like he's been a programmer for a long time and that was what he majored in in college. And he's, he knew he wanted to be a programmer when he was a kid and he became a programmer. And like, so he's really, he has just so much more knowledge about programming in general. And he's written so many other languages than I have and stuff like that. So there's, that's part of it. But part of it also is just, we have really, um, complementary skills too. And so, um, w our process usually is that one of us writes something and then the other one sort of edits and improves it. Um, and we go back and forth, like for type classes, we don't, um, stuff that we publish on type classes, we usually don't have an attribution. So, um, 
most pieces on type classes were written by one or the other of us and, and then just edited by the other one. Um, but <clears throat> for the books, you know, we have to provide, we have to choose an order in which to list the co-authors, right? <laughs> so the next mm-hmm. book that's coming out, he'll be the first author on, and then I'm going to be co-author because my role for that is more going to be the editor and critic of it, right? And so that's how we do. So like I wrote uh, Finding Success in Haskell. Um, I wrote mostly by myself. And then he was the the critic that um, came along and read it and told me the things that were um, wrong and the things that were unclear and um, the things that maybe needed more examples. And, um, and so that's sort of our process. And then I go back and edit it and he rereads it and, and, uh, so it's really that's a fairly simple process and I really like it because I think it's so easy when you write by yourself to become um to let yourself think that well you know I've worked through this and so and everything that I've thought of all the counter examples that I've thought of um were you know I've dealt with all of those and so I must be correct right I must I must have thought of everything and then it, when you work with even just one other person, um, you find how many things that you didn't even think of. <laughs> it's interesting. You're reminding me of something you something you spoke about once about how if you come up with a mathematical proof but you can't convey it, it's kind of effectively not right. true. <laughs> because I mean, it needs to be other at least uh, other people need to understand. Yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, in order for it to be a, a true proof, in a sense, and there's a, there's a there's a really interesting sense in which in which that's the case. Uh, and so the process of writing means, you know, well, you're actually it's about conveying right. something uh, successfully to other yep. people. And so you chose um, uh, LeanPub as the platform for your latest. Yeah. Book. Uh, what was the reason for that? Um, it just seemed like a very frictionless way to to get it published and it had the right, um, it had the right tools for offering something in early access. And, um, it's very accessible, like it's very widely accessible. And, um, certainly like in our, our little niche of the world, right. And sort of tech self-publishing, I mean, everybody's heard of it. And so it's not, um, you know, you're not going to be referring people to some, to some site to buy your book that they've never heard of. And they are like, I don't know if I can trust their <laughs> security and taking my payments and stuff like that. Um, but it was just so, uh, the support for like different formats and stuff just was really just frictionless and, and nice. So we had, um, we thought at first, you know, well, we'll give it a try and see, see how you know easy it is to first get it uploaded and get a, page made for it and um then if we don't like it we can always you know move it somewhere else right but i mean so far i think we've been really happy with the um you know how easy it is to keep it updated and to for everybody we haven't had any complaints with people you know who've bought it and then like um my first book was on Gumroad, and we had some problems where, um, not to talk bad about them, I guess, but we had some problems like with, where people couldn't get their download or their download got badly mangled or something like that. And we haven't had any of that kind of thing on LeanPub, so it's just been a very frictionless experience. And uh, so, 
Oh yeah, that, no, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting. I mean, that that the kind of stuff is not the kind of thing we we often hear about directly. So that's very good. And you know, every every service. I mean, we don't talk badly about yeah. anybody, and every service has their issues. Um, one of the things that we've because in particular, LeanPub, you know, kind of genetically is about in progress publishing. Yeah. Uh, and with technology and things that change quickly, one thing we're we're sort of like confident about is that handling situations where something doesn't work quite right is actually we're we're built for, for solving mm. that or, or or resolving that. And you know, for example, we make it really easy to get refunds, right? And that's partly because you know we want people to feel like buying a book is kind of like online. An ebook is the equivalent of taking it off the mm. shelf, you know, in a bookstore and thumbing through it. And if you don't like it, well, you can kind of put it back. But this is not the way that all sort of online, right. sort of, you know, bookstores work. And so one really interesting thing, I, I just learned this last night. So uh, you do you use Haskell to produce your ebook files? Um, yeah. <laughs> um. So I, I just I just got to say, like, I, one of the pleasures of having such sophisticated authors is that one of the reasons we built you, you for your book, you're using our bring your own book writing mode where you don't use any of our the tools that right. we provide for writing a book. Uh, you use all of our, our, our really sophisticated, like, you know, bookstore features, but you you produce your own ebook files yeah. and lots of people have their own very opinionated ways of doing this. And you have a particularly opinionated. Yeah. Um, we started that actually when we started writing together. Um, although our original version was, I think more, um, I guess more sophisticated, but that's the, the intent is to use that with a much longer book. And cause one of the problems with tech writing right, is keeping it updated and especially like the Haskell compiler changes a lot. And so most of the stuff that we used in this particular book isn't going to change very much. And so it should, we expect it will continue to, to compile and all the code will work for some time. But in the bigger, there's another book that we're writing and in, in, in that one, a lot of the stuff that we're writing, it's a lot more up for grabs, whether it will continue to compile six months from now. <laughs> um, six months might be an exaggeration, but, uh, and we want to be able to keep it updated. And so we developed this whole, um, this whole thing that automatically tests all the code in the book, like every time we build the book. And, um, so we took a sort of subset of that since this one is less complicated and also much shorter. Um, we took a sort of subset of that and yeah, the, the book is, um, is built, uh, with, Haskell and Nix, and um, and is this is this is this process public? Uh, is it something that other people can can find out? It isn't. It isn't or? yet, but we are intending to to make it public. Yeah. So okay. Well, please, please, please let us know yeah. when you do that because we'd love. I'm sure our authors, whether you know whether they they adopt it themselves or not, you know, many of our authors love hearing about how other authors. Yeah, think. yeah. Um, well, it's one of those things that too that I think. Um, like, I know a lot of people because I teach, I go around and teach Haskell workshops. Mostly I teach Haskell workshops to people who I don't think they have the idea that they'll ever become like a full-time Haskell programmer. They're just sort of interested in it and want to know, um, you know, they just want to, they're curious. And which I think is, is great and to be encouraged. And so one of the things I've discovered is that like a lot of them would like to have some kind of Haskell sort of side project where they could be um, using Haskell in some in some fashion, but not have to be constantly 
you know, marinating in it. And, um, I've, I've recommended to a lot of them. There's a static site generator written in Haskell called Hackle that lets you tinker around with, with Haskell's monads. Um, but no, I think there's so much documentation for this static site generator. And so many people have written blog posts about, well, I wanted to tweak it to do X that I think if you play around with it as a side project, like you can get a really good exposure to, to Haskell. Um, and I think that I'm sort of hoping that, um, our book building library package when we, when we get ready to release that and a couple of the other packages that, um, hopefully we'll be releasing, um, will, I think, I hope give people more sort of opportunity to do that. So. Yeah. Well, th- thanks very much for that. I'm sure, I'm sure people will be really interested in seeing, in seeing it when it's, when. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the last question I always like to ask on this podcast is if there was one thing we could build for you on LeanPub or one thing we could fix for you, can you think of anything you would command us to do? Ooh. Um, so this just came up today, actually. And um, we there's a Haskell conference going on right now that we are uh, one of the sponsors of called Hack in Zurich. And... Um, we made a coupon code for the ebook for Zuri Hack attendees as part of our sponsorship. But um, since you can't actually enter a coupon code, as far as we can tell, um, like at checkout or whatever, you have to give people this slightly awkward and long URL. And so I wish that you could do, you could just give them just a coupon code and they could just go buy the book and use the coupon code. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we, we always love them. I mean, the more specific, the feedback we get is the better. Uh, and, and, and so we used to have okay. codes. Uh, and as you're, as you're, as you're explaining, we now, what we provide instead is coupon right. links. And so the way that works is, you know, there'll be www or whatever dot leanpub.com slash, well, actually no www, just leanpub.com slash your book URL slash, and then you can create a coupon code. So it could be zero hack 2019 or something like that, but you do have to provide people with the entire yeah. link. Uh, in order for them to be able to redeem the coupon. And one of the reasons, so we used to have coupon okay. codes that you enter, there'd be a little box, enter the coupon code. And one of my, my co-founders will get mad at me if I'm misrepresenting this. But as I recall, because it was quite some time ago, the reason we switched to links rather than coupon mm-hmm. codes is that if people go to a page and see a coupon code box, they're like, well, where's the coupon? Code? Oh, And so they feel cheated if they don't have the coupon code. Interesting but someone else does. And so what that means is that basically, I mean, it's a negative experience for the customer, right? Because they're like, well, if only I had that coupon, right. I could be paying less for this. So there's a secret club out there of coupon code havers, you know, and I'm, and I'm not one of them. And so I believe this is actually one of the reasons that, you know, like, you know, if you, if you listen to podcasts and they're like, go to, you know, great courses plus slash as a client or something like that, you know, that's, that's the reason it's done that way. Rather than, rather than providing a coupon code box, you sort of, it's kind of like a secret only for those. And so you don't, you don't want to reveal that there's a secret to people who don't have the secret because then they feel, they feel, they feel kind of cheated or left out. Interesting. Coupon code boxes, I think, are fairly common on like retail sites. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's kind of like a settled right, thing. No, um, yeah. Uh, you know, because, yeah, because, because people, you know, if you go to the grocery store, you probably know that, you know, oh, if only I'd, you know, didn't put up that no junk mail sign, I'd have gotten a big thing full right. of coupons. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a settled thing, but you know, the, our, our opinion was that, you know, we wanted after having had a coupon code box, we're like, yeah, let's do yeah. it. Let's do it. The coupon no, it's really, yeah. we really, we really appreciate hearing that, that your expectation was for a coupon code box. That's, it's always good for us to hear. Yeah, that. no, that's, uh, and it's really interesting for me to hear the, you know, the other side of that. So thank you. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to go tell Chris. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, Julie, for uh, being game for questions on all kinds of different things and for taking the time out of your day to uh, talk to Yeah, well, this us. was a really uh, interesting conversation. Over. It wasn't, um, I don't think it was in, like any other podcast I've been on. So <laughs> thank you. for Nobody else has asked me about Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've been doing this for years, and I've been waiting all this time uh, to ask that question. So, <laughs> thanks very much. Yeah. And and thank you for for you to you and Chris for using LeanPub for your latest book. Yeah. We really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you for providing the service. Like I said, it's been a it's been a good experience so far. So. Okay. Thanks. And thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you heard a couple of blips in the audio, you're not crazy. They really were there, but I don't think they really got in the way. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you found us, particularly on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.